Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As President Biden mentions the quiet part out loud about U.S. dreams for regime change in Russia, the conflict in Ukraine is unleashing a tide of political and economic changes in the world. We speak to historian Gerald Horn. We may be seeing the beginnings of a new international order that will involve a so-called de-dollarization, that is to say the downplaying and diminishing of the dollar as an international reserve currency, even the Financial Times of London has pointed out, you already have multipolarity. And the effort to evict Russia and Russian oil and gas from the world economy even prompts the U.S. to meet with Venezuela, where U.S. sanctions have killed more than 100,000 people. An interview with Carlos Ron, Venezuela's Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs for North America. We've lived it. I mean, we've seen things against Venezuela. Our own history has been turned upside down by this narrative. Now we see it going on the rest. But when is this going to stop? All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the war between Russia and Ukraine kicked into another gear this week after U.S. President Joe Biden declared in a speech that President Vladimir Putin of Russia must be removed from office. Though Biden's underlings tried to walk back his call for regime change in the world's other nuclear power, Biden doubled down this week, refusing to take back his comments. I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man. French President Emmanuel Macron was among the leaders distancing himself from Biden's comments, saying, quote, we should not escalate things, neither with words nor actions, end quote. While pundits debated among themselves about Biden's comments and whether the U.S. is the one really calling the shots in Kiev, the war raged on. Western corporate media detailing Russia's flattening of the city of Mariupol, Russia's stated intention to shift focus from Kiev, and Russia calling up an additional 124,000 conscripts to fight in the Donbass region of East Ukraine, where Russia is surrounding the Ukrainian army. At the same time, reports emerged this week from independent journalists of captured Russian prisoners being hooded and shot by Ukrainian soldiers and ethnic minorities in Ukraine being tortured, murdered, or being used as human shields by the Azov Battalion or other Ukrainian neo-Nazi forces integrated within the military. There's also an update this week on the mistreatment of African students and other people of color fleeing Ukraine. A consortium of European media outlets, including The Independent in the UK, published an investigation detailing how African students are being held in detention camps in Poland and Estonia with their phones seized with no legal assistance and as they're not being allowed to pass into Europe in the same manner as white refugees. The March 23rd story in The Independent says this about one student. He, quote, had been studying trade and economics in Kharkov before the war broke out. 
The Nigerian national left the city and arrived at the border on February 27th, where he says his phone was confiscated by Polish border guards and he was given no option but to sign a form he did not understand and taken to a detention center in the small village of Lesnowola. It is a closed camp inside a forest, said the student speaking from the facility. There's no freedom. Some people have been here more than nine months. Some have gone mad. I'm scared. End quote. Meanwhile, advocates for immigrant rights on the U.S. southern border reacted to what they described as the hypocrisy of the Biden administration's recent announcement that the U.S. would accept up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees while the U.S. continues to deport Haitians and Central Americans seeking asylum. And according to the official website of the U.S. Peace Corps, counseling volunteers who may serve in Ukraine, these refugees coming here may hold racist attitudes toward their new African-American neighbors. The Peace Corps website reads, quote, It is not uncommon for Ukrainians to refer to African-Americans as the N-word. Volunteers of color may be called a monkey or may see children's games with blackface. Being aware of the history of dehumanization for people of African descent may help inform where this comes from. It does not justify it. End quote. More on these stories after headlines with Professor Gerald Horn. Now, Russia's new rule for countries that have imposed sanctions on it to pay for natural gas purchases in rubles by April 1st or be cut off from supply has been set in motion. But with European countries still paying in euros, countries must open an account with Russia's Gazprom bank, which is not sanctioned, transfer the gas payments directly to this account, and then the bank exchanges the payment for rubles credits the buyer's ruble account, and transfers the funds to the gas provider. Gazprom Bank is exempt from U.S. sanctions, as is the ruble Russian currency, which has been gaining in value since the recent sanctions regime began. Meanwhile, as the U.S. spends or plans to spend billions more in Ukraine, a $15 billion package for fighting the coronavirus here at home is stalled in Congress, and is threatened to be cut by a third, eliminating promised vaccine assistance to poor countries abroad. Also, on Tuesday, March 29th, Congress held its first hearing on Medicare for All since the onset of the pandemic, which has claimed nearly a million lives in the U.S. Economist Jeffrey Sachs presented a flurry of facts from declining life expectancy to rising numbers of what he called deaths of desperation in the U.S., in detailing that the U.S. health system is broken. All of the other countries have higher life expectancy than the United States. And the gap is widening dramatically. We are broken. We spend far more on health care. We get far less because we, we don't even have a health care system. We have a hodgepodge of private overpriced monopolies, but this is a broken, unfair, out-of-control cost system that doesn't deliver. 
A new Gallup survey reveals that 44% of American adults, or roughly 112 million people, are struggling to pay for health care, and a full 93% feel they are, quote, paying too much for the quality of care received, end quote. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont said he will hold Medicare for all hearings in the Senate in May. In culture and media, imprisoned journalist Julian Assange was married to Stella Morris, his longtime fiance, on March 23rd inside London's Belmarsh prison. Assange exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Biden administration is continuing the efforts started under the Trump administration to extradite and charge Assange with 17 counts of the U.S. Espionage Act, even though Assange is not a U.S. citizen. Journalist Chris Hedges flew from New York to attend the ceremony and wrote this in an article on Sheer Post. Quote, the day is bittersweet. Julian may never be able to live with his wife and family, yet it is an affirmation of love and commitment and hope carried out in a small side room with folding chairs and a laminate table. The prison authorities denied Julian and Stella use of the chapel. The ceremony was witnessed by six family members, including Julian and Stella's two young sons, one of whom fell asleep and the other of whom was preoccupied with a paper plane and tried to turn on one of the alarms. Two guards were stationed in the room. There was no reception. There was no cake. The prison denied Julian and Stella's request for a photographer. A guard took a few pictures, but prison authorities told Julian and Stella they could not be posted on social media or shared with the public. They were allowed to kiss. This prompted the older boy, Gabriel, to say, the family told me, oh, that's a sloppy one. Afterwards, the Catholic chaplain, who had the foresight to bring a white tablecloth and candles, gave them his blessing. Julian and Stella were given half an hour together in a crowded visitor's hall. And then Julian, prisoner A9379AY, was escorted back to his cell to the applause of the prisoners on his tier. And those are the words of Chris Hedges writing about the wedding of Julian Assange and Stella Morris. And finally, the Emmett Till Anti-Litching Act was signed into law on Tuesday, March 29th, by President Biden at a ceremony at the White House. Michelle Duster, the great-granddaughter of the anti-lynching crusader and journalist Ida B. Wells, was on hand to speak to the crowd. My brother Dan and I are honored to be here and represent our great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who once said, our country's national crime is lynching. She was born enslaved in 1862, Holly Springs, Mississippi, the same state where 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched 93 years later. She became one of the first investigative and most prominent journalists and civil rights activists of her time. She carefully chronicled names, dates, locations, and excuses used to justify lynchings. She wrote articles and pamphlets and gave speeches about the atrocities. 
And it was personal to her because three of her enterprising friends, Thomas Moss, Will Stewart, and Calvin McDowell, who co-owned a grocery store in Memphis, were lynched in 1892. She knew these upstanding men who were leaders in the community. They were guilty of no crime. Through her writing and speaking, she exposed uncomfortable truths that upset the status quo. Truths that lynching was being used as an excuse to terrorize the black community in order to maintain a social and economic hierarchy based on race. And for that, her life was threatened, her printing press was destroyed, and she was exiled from the South. Despite losing everything, she continued to speak out across this country and Great Britain about the violence and terror of lynching. She eventually settled in Chicago, where I was born, and where Emmett Till was born. And in 1898, in response to the lynching of Postmaster Fraser Baker in Lake City, South Carolina, she visited President William S. McKinley right here in Washington to urge him to make lynching a federal crime. Since my great-grandmother's visit to the White House 124 years ago, there have been over 200 attempts to get legislation enacted. And 17 years ago, in 2005, my brother Dan spoke at the Senate press conference where they issued an apology for not passing the legislation. But we finally stand here today, generations later, to witness this historic moment of President Biden signing the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill into law. We are here today because of the tenacity of the civil rights leaders and commitment of members of Congress who are here today. And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I heard him call out. I heard him call for his mother, and I didn't even call my mother. I wanted to avoid talking about the elephant in the room, the pig on my neck, the devil on detail. We were born of a people who were torn from their people for the root of all evil. From it sprung the trunk, the branches, and the fruit of all evil. Unless they need you, they act as if they don't see you, besiege you, and tell you to cooperate as if it's something you agreed to. Before a criminal's constitution, nothing's illegal, except people who were once property, destroying property, upheaval. Keep your eye on the sparrow, the bald eagle, defeathered and beheaded at the stoop of the steeple, guarded by soldiers, stupid yet lethal. It doesn't matter if a liar has a republic or democracy or monarchy, it's malarkey. Don't mind me if I seem a little off-key or I sing a little off-key. But when we're on keys, we can unlock things. Souls freed, otherwise held hostage. On the ebony and ivory with the heart of a Gnostic, but hands of a locksmith. A pharmacist, a prescription for the toxic, eating away at our subconscious. Eight ball in a corner pocket, eight ball on a corner carpet. How can we stop it when the cops and the robbers, money is their religion, they follow the same prophets. 
So don't mind me if I seem a little off-key Or I sing a little off-key But once we're in tune How we can conduct the cosmos Conductor of the orchestra Conductor of the underground railroad Don't you see the kick, the thump, the heart The crashing cymbals as symbols of shields in America, no cap in America. If you're black and the finger snap, they the black in America. So don't mind me if I seem a little off key or I sing a little off key. More than mere melody, using horn and string to quarantine from a disease that sees us as less as human and more as things. So we don't play music, we pray music. Those same nooses hang useless. Raise the dead like Jesus did We don't play music We pray music Vivid and lucid Dreams letting loose in the pure hearts With divine acoustics We lay blueprints at the blue notes I come from a people transmuted Transformed by song Until the musicians are translucent Until you see through them And see through this And bear witness to the oneness That from nothingness brought forth all of existence So don't mind me If I seem a little off-key Or I sing a little off-key It's more than mere melody I'm in tune We're in tune This is On the Ground OnTheGroundShow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Averam and now I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I wanted to talk to you because I was struck by contrast this week in Washington. Just this week, Joe Biden signed the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill into law. At the same time, approving the admission of 100,000 Ukrainian refugees who would, I assume, kind of leapfrog over the scores, uh, legions of Haitians, Hondurans, El Salvadorans who have been stuck, you know, at the Mexican border uh, trying to apply for asylum. Title 42, that law, which has kept people in kind of a COVID limbo in Mexico, is being repealed, I assume, just in time to welcome these new refugees from Europe. And I also understand that at the same time, Africans trying to flee Ukraine are stuck in detention centers in Poland, Estonia, and Black Peace Corps volunteers being dispatched to Ukraine are being told that you might face uh, racist treatment and even be called the N-word by these same refugees that we are welcoming here to the United States. So as a black woman <laughs> here, I just I'm struck by the contrast in the signing of this law dealing with the legacy of racism and mob violence and lynching here in this country, and giving us uh, an added scoop of white supremacy <laughs> coming our way that, as taxpayers, we will be expected to pay for. Well, clearly, this reveals the contradictions of U.S. imperialism. That is to say, that I dare say that this mistreatment and maltreatment of Africans on the Ukraine-Polish border and 
in these detention camps probably has something to do not only with the lukewarm approach taken by African nations to this matter of sanctions against Moscow, but I think it also has domestic consequence. Insofar as I've noticed in terms of my forays into black radio, that weeks ago when this conflict first erupted, I did not necessarily detect any sort of opposition to U.S. imperialism's escapade in Eastern Europe. But after the story started pouring out about how black people were being treated uh, just this week, for example, I noticed that there has been a change. And in fact, what I find even more striking is that if you look at the newspaper of the Nation of Islam, the final call, its analysis of the Ukraine issue is in a sense much sharper than that of many of our friends on the left. They engage not in this kind of editorializing. They're trying to do an analysis, trying to figure out what kind of order, world order, will arise as a result of this titanic conflict. And I also think that what this uh, crisis reveals is that strategically, uh, per my previous point, uh, U.S. imperialism needs to propagandize, if you like, its so-called allies in Eastern Europe, if they're going to continue to be involved there, to curb or at least a better mask their uh, anti-black tendencies. But that's going to be difficult, number one, because some of their so-called allies are right-wing populists or worse. And that does not even get to the point that this anti-black tendency obviously is very deeply entrenched in the United States itself and is reflected in TV and movies that are then exported to Eastern Europe, which then shapes their attitudes uh, towards black people. So it's an illustration of how U.S. imperialism is trapped in a contradiction. Now, I'd also like to, to expand a bit more on that point about the left, because I think that this crisis is exposing the inability of certain forces on the left to engage in a global analysis. That is to say, they're keen on editorial denunciations of Moscow or even individual denunciations of the president of Russia. But I don't think you can understand this conflict with that kind of bilateral tunnel vision. As of April 1st, 2022, we'll get a better idea of what the meaning of this conflict portends. Because, as you know, on Friday, April 1st, 2022, you're having a virtual summit between leaders of the People's Republic of China and the European Union. And if the European Union decides to go along with this idea that has been floated, that Washington will impose so-called secondary sanctions on China because of China's unwillingness to break with Russia, then you'll get an idea of what the real meaning is of this conflict in Eastern Europe. In other words, you just can't understand it with a kind of tunnel vision focusing on Kiev and Moscow. Likewise, in that vein, note that the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was in Beijing, warmly greeted earlier this week by the Chinese leadership. 
that as we speak, he's in New Delhi meeting with the Indian leadership where relations are quite strong. We know that in Beijing, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, also had discussions with the Iranian foreign minister who happened to be in China at that same moment. And so what you are beginning to see is actually what the, the final call, Nation of Islam newspaper noticed, which is that we may be seeing the beginnings of a new international order that will involve a so-called de-dollarization, that is to say the downplaying and diminishing of the dollar as an international reserve currency. Even the Financial Times of London has pointed out that uh, as we speak, you already have multipolarity in terms of the monetary system with a move away from the unipolarity of the use of the dollar with the rise not only of the euro and the Chinese renminbi, uh, but also the increased use of Canadian currency and international trade, Australian currency, etc. On Thursday, didn't the Germans have to pay money directly into the Gazprom bank? And this allowed them to kind of evade sanctions, but also pay the uh, Russians, basically wind up paying them in rubles. Well, that's another gaping loophole in these sanctions. The Gazprom Bank, the third largest bank in Russia, is tied to the behemoth Gazprom, the natural gas exporter. Mm -hmm. It's not sanctioned. That is to say, the Gazprom Bank is not sanctioned. And so it's the third largest bank now. If this trend continues, it'll probably be the largest bank by the end of the year. And And the ruble is going up in value, right? Correct. And of Mm -hmm. course, the, the... Discussion in New Delhi with Sergey Lavrov is about rupee-ruble trade, that is to say uh, Indian currency and Russian currency. We've seen the discussion in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, about Saudis selling their oil to China and receiving in return uh, Chinese currency, the renminbi. And so what this portends for the United States, if the United States imperialism is not careful, that this de-dollarization Uh, will lead to a situation where the United States will have to find an alternative to the printing press in order to deal with the severe economic problems. And that if the United States is not careful, and if we're not careful, then you'll see dramatic uh, program cuts from everything from the post office to the Pentagon. And uh, this is quite disturbing, needless to say. And if I may, may I make one more point? Oh, sure. I have one. I have another question for you also. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Which is that uh, in in terms of a certain kind of ideological collapse of some of our friends on the left, I've even heard some uh, give a rationalization for NATO in the sense that they argue that these uh, Eastern European countries uh, need protection from the big bad wolf in Moscow. Well, this is a mangling of history. I don't have time to go through the entire list, but let me just say briefly that if you look at the history of Finland, for example, it basically gains its independence after decades of czarist rule as a result of the Russian Revolution of 1917. If you look at Yugoslavia, uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the founder of socialist Yugoslavia, Joseph Braz Tito, who broke with Moscow as earliest the 1940s, went on to be a founder of the non-aligned movement. And 
when Yugoslavia came under attack, it was obviously by NATO and the United States. If you look at uh, Romania, for example, it developed a relationship with Nixon personally. I'm speaking of the Romanian leader, Nicolae Ceausescu, as early as the 1960s. If you look at Albania, another formerly socialist country in Eastern Europe, which, by the way, helped to move the resolution at the United Nations castigating uh, Moscow a few weeks ago. It turned against Moscow as early as the 1960s. It had Maoist leadership for the longest period of time. And if you look at Maoist mean anti-Soviet leadership, by the way, and if you look at Bulgaria, for example, I think some of our friends on the left are not aware of the fact that many nations in southeastern Europe, such as Bulgaria, felt that they owed a debt of gratitude to Moscow because it helped to protect them from the ravages and depredations of the Ottoman Turks. And that's particularly true for Bulgaria, which owes whatever sovereignty it enjoyed to Russian intervention as early as the 1870s. And so why people on the left would seek to justify on bad evidence, on non-existent evidence, why NATO should exist today in 2022 in a sense, it's beyond me. Well, I guess there's two things that I saw this week. Uh, I saw in corporate media, for example, I think it was MSNBC, given the example of Russians' intervention, the conflict with Chechnya uh, being given as a, an example of what they're doing to Ukraine. Uh, all of these conflicts are presented without the kind of historical narrative that you provide and background with no context. And so they don't talk about who was backing various separatist movements at various times to fight either the Soviet Union or Russia. They don't talk about the what happened in in Georgia, for example, for example, and uh, I guess South Ossetia is having a vote now to possibly even join Russia. So corporate media is not doing a good job at all. And I guess they can't do a good job because you have to read, have a correct reading of history to do a good job. But the other thing that I've seen in terms of the contrast I mentioned to start our talk is that when Kamala Harris speaks after the great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells to uh, at the signing of the Emmett Till Law, you know, she talks about, you know, fighting for freedom and God bless the United States of America. And it's without any type of irony that we are supporting a regime in, in Ukraine that has neo-Nazi forces throughout its military that has engaged in repression of ethnic Russians, uh, newspapers, some of the first things they did was try to uh, basically outlaw the Russian language or decertify it as an official language. None of these facts are coming out in terms of uh, sticking up for this country that they want to call a democracy. And at the same time, people in this country aren't having our rights protected here. Well, there's one more point with regard to the previous point I made, which is that uh, I, I'm afraid to say that what, that critique that I made of certain forces on the left is nothing new. Uh, you might recall that if you could reel back to January 1945, there was little understanding that World War II, which would end rather shortly, 
would mean an erosion of the British Empire leading to a jolt for independence movements in Africa and the Caribbean, that the United States would quickly turn on its wartime ally, the Soviet Union, and ignite a red scare decimating the left and a Cold War seeking to overthrow the former Soviet Union, that the U.S. empire would help to erode the strength of the British Empire through the Bretton Woods Agreement and the supplanting of the British pound with the U.S. dollar. And so we see history repeating itself in a sense, because once again, I think people on the left would be well advised to look around the corner and over the horizon uh, rather than have this kind of tunnel vision that only allows a view from Washington direct to Kiev and then on to Moscow. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to keep looking and looking beyond just Washington to Kiev to Moscow on, on the ground. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. By the strength of the people, from the streets to the steeple, we all equal inspiration. Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente, lo que usa en su mente para revolución. Hey, I'm inspired by the strength of the people, from the streets to the steeple, we all equal inspiration. Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente, lo que usa en su mente para liberación. Hey yo, hey yo, my heroes are young lords, adored and ready to go to war in a society with racial anxiety, singing the blues of various hues and colors on the streets. People were killing each other, so they formed a Coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación or Muerte, Liberty or Death to their last breath, fighting for those that have less. So though we man stress, we still blessed. Still stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people from the streets to the steeple. We all equal inspiration. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While the effort to evict Russia and Russian oil and gas from the world economy even prompted the U.S. to meet with Venezuela, where U.S. sanctions have killed more than 100,000 people. Carlos Ron, Venezuela's Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs for North America, recently spoke to activists Leonardo Flores and Terry Matson of Code Pink Radio. So on March 5th, this news broke out of a meeting that took place between high-level U.S. government officials and President Maduro, and also other high-level officials from, from the Venezuelan government. It was the perhaps the first meeting in a very long time of this high-level representation. I believe that we can say this is, you know, there's a lot of changes going on throughout the world. I think we're definitely in, in a new era of many situations that, that are going on. I think it shows the failure of that maximum pressure policy that was implemented during the Trump administration in the sense that it didn't amount to what the U.S. had 
wanted uh, as an objective. And of course, it, it ended up hurting a lot of Venezuelan people. I think that now this new administration that's been, you know, a bit over a year in government, it hadn't really changed, you know, policies. And none, uh, up to date, none of the so-called sanctions, unilateral course measures have been lifted or, or changed. But there was this one first meeting between government officials. So I think it shows that at the end, we've always been right in saying that the best ways to communicate or to establish a policy uh, between Venezuela and the United States is through the channels of diplomacy, is through speaking rather than through aggressions. There's always room for, for communication or for dialogue if it comes in a respectful way. Yeah. Maduro said, stated a couple of days after the meeting when he came on to live television to, to speak to, to Venezuelan people about, about these issues, you know, he said it was a it was a cordial meeting. It was a diplomatic meeting. It was it was a a respectful meeting, and I think that's very important for us to point out. Venezuela has never been against diplomacy. Venezuela has never been against speaking. We've been what we've been is reacting, of course, against aggressions. I mean, you have to remember, in the last three four years, we have undergone attacks like blackout that, that came out of uh, you know an attack to uh, hacking our electrical system, uh, an attempted uh, invasion by mercenaries, U.S. trained, some of them coming from Colombia, coup attempt uh, led by Guaido and, and Leopoldo Lopez, all these forms of aggression. Uh, and of course, we're going to react and we're going to have you know, a strong position against them. But what we always continuously stated is that we're open to politics. We're open to diplomacy. We're open to speaking another time of term. So this visit, I think, represents a victory for diplomacy, in, in, in a sense. That is not to say that things have completely changed or that this is the beginning of conversations that we'll see if they continue and, and if there's the political will to continue them. But I think it is definitely an important new moment where, you know, diplomacy is, is at least in this moment triumphing over you know, all the other types of aggressions. To me, this meeting was really interesting because in the days just before the meeting, you had President Biden extending the U.S. national emergency with regards to Venezuela, the one that calls Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to the United States, which is patently absurd. You also had the United States and Colombia engaging in military exercises, maritime exercises with a nuclear submarine right off of the Venezuelan coast. So what does it say that on the one hand, finally, after so many years, you have the United States willing to speak with Venezuela? I, I read in the media that it was the first visit by a White House official since the late 1990s, so over 20 years. And so so at the, on the one hand, they're willing to meet, but on the other, they're still kind of keeping this pressure on Venezuela. And then right after the meeting, a few days later, you had the Colombian president, Ivan Duque, come to Washington, where... You know, the news was announced that Colombia was named a non-NATO major ally of the United States, which carries with it all sorts of uh, implications for the defense industry and for the, the Colombian economy. So what do you make of, of the United States kind of talking to Venezuela, but then at the same time, almost increasing the pressure in some ways? Well, I, I can't speak to what's on their minds and really what the objective or the purpose of that is. I mean, we can say that this is a first advance, first achievement like in, in diplomatic terms. But like I said before, it, it's by no means the recomposition of relations or everything is, is over and, and, and there's a new relationship. 
What I think, though, it does is definitely call for uh, or show, you know, the need to re-engage in that type of approach, in an approach for diplomacy rather than all these aggressions, but rather than, you know, the military threats next door. It was them that requested the, the visit, and it was very welcomed in the sense that under these circumstances, the circumstances of communication with respect, we are willing to sit down and talk and, and listen and, and dialogue. It's fascinating to me. I mean, and it's not been overtly discussed in the U.S. media. Well, to some of us on the progressive and leftist news, yes. But the meeting was with the Maduro government, not the Guaido government as that has been recognized by the United States. I mean, that's basically a de facto recognition that Nicolas Maduro is the democratically elected president of Venezuela, which is huge in and of itself. And no, yeah, I completely agree. I think I think, I think it's, it is it was quite a it's quite important because because what we said all along all, all this time, you know, there there is there really isn't another government. There is no parallel structure that you know it, it is only a, a fiction to call Guaido interim president or, or whatever. It, as far as I understand, they didn't even know you know that this was what was taking place until afterwards. So it shows that. And, you know, it's telling a lot of these people that are willing to do damage or call for damage on their own country, thinking that, you know, they will get somehow rewarded by the United States. They might as well. History has shown this many times. They they could probably end up, you know, bypassed or even ignored in, in, in moments when they're no longer part of the interests of, of the U.S. So, I think it, it is a positive, of course, a, a recognition. It's a recognition that happened not only by the U.S. government. It's a recognition that even the U.S. media, mainstream media, that you know, used to no longer call uh, President Maduro president, but you know, the regime or the de facto leader or whatever. Then all of a sudden, you start seeing other lines again. You know, well, President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela is funny that you have to go through this in order to come back to reality in, in the United States. <laughs> Going off that, I, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting, this changing media landscape that you alluded to, because, you know, in the days before, weeks before this meeting, and then immediately after it, you had all these articles in mainstream uh, publications kind of changing their tone towards Venezuela. So, for example, before the meeting, the New York Times had this long piece lauding Venezuela's so-called new technocrats. You had the Washington Post, and really the most incredible opinion I've ever seen in the Washington Post where they said it's titled behind U.S. foreign policy toward Venezuela are century-old racist tropes, are basically arguing that U.S.-Venezuela policy has been based on white supremacy. You had an opinion in the Miami Herald, of all places, calling for sanctions relief. And even Bloomberg is saying, well, now Venezuela is embracing capitalism, which isn't true. But I think the, the point Bloomberg is trying to make is that it's okay to approach Venezuela. I think what's important here to recognize is that, you know, if you can so easily change a couple of headlines and a couple of articles in, in order to show, it's, that the, it's not that reality changed in three days. It's that reality wasn't being told the way it should be. And then, you know, again, like you said, you know, we're in no way renouncing, you know, we haven't renounced socialism. As a matter of fact, President Maduro has been since the beginning of this year talking about the renewal of our socialism. We're talking about, we, we believe we're not at 
the socialism stage where we want to be. We are in a process of transition towards socialism. But this is a new moment, a new era of transition towards socialism. This is something that we, we've been discussing, but we've never renounced that idea. We are that we've always said that we are we are adapting socialist policies to our own reality, to our own context, to our own time. But you know, we, we said that, and you know, we've been claiming for so many years that this is not a war zone. This is not a place that when you come here, you you know, you guys know this because you've been to Venezuela in recent years. But you know that if you read the newspapers, you think that this is a war zone, or, and that you can't even come here because something's going to happen to you, like all. All of a sudden, we realized in, in three or four articles that these things were, Venezuela some, somehow is not as bad as it seemed, or it's not as, as bad as they made it seem for all these years. There's a reality where this is a country that has been hurt, and it's true, this, it has been hurt by this U.S. policy of sanctions. We have seen a lot of difficulties we could have. And, and you know, these sanctions were aimed at the beginning at attacking those things that we had, that, that the revolution had been able to to improve and to better, uh, you know, after the the years of neoliberal policies, we had strong healthcare, we had strong food distribution, we had strong education, and all these things started being affected directly by these sanctions. Even then, though, the people, the Venezuelan people have resisted. And, you know, we've made all these strides to make sure that we survive. And the government has tried to make use of, of the little revenues that we we're able to get and not let the, you know, social programs uh, die down. It's been a struggle for us. And it's been a struggle that in the last couple of months, you know, even the last year, we've seen a lot of success uh, in, you know, overcoming these difficulties, you know, for the first time. In this whole year, we, we, we overcame hyperinflation. You know, this hyperinflation that we're talking about, that this whole year so far has not had those high levels of, of inflation. Even and despite all these sanctions put into place, we found ways to be creative and to move around it. So what I think is interesting is that now the U.S. can really or should really start seeing the Venezuela that is really here, the truth about Venezuela, the Venezuela that really exists, and not this you know, mythical monster that they've built in, in the press. It's so, I guess as a U.S. citizen, to say it's so astounding and hypocritical and to see the U.S. change. I mean, we are all happy that it's happened, that it was the U.S. that approached the Venezuelan government. But to have, I mean, I'll just be very coarse about it. The U.S. has had a policy of basically starving, starving your nation. Yeah and denying medical access to medical supplies and technology, all of it. I mean, just on and on and on. And then just, oh, by the way, now we need your oil. It's just, it doesn't say much for the integrity, to me, as a U.S. citizen, to me, the integrity with U.S. diplomacy. And I think it sends a very big message to the rest of the world. It's like, well, and I, and to a certain degree, I understand this is politics and economics too. Everybody has certain interests at one point and then it shifts and the puzzle gets put back together in a different way. But it's, it's huge that it was the U.S. that approached Caracas, that it was Washington that took the initiative out of need. I would say, you know, out of political need, because a lot of people are going to be very upset paying a lot of money for gas this coming summer. <laughs> Well, I think, I think, Terry, that the, the issue here is that we have to remember 
it was never Venezuela that changed its relationship. You know, even since the beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution, even with President Chavez uh, was here early on, Venezuela developed its own policies, its own independent foreign policy, developed its own social policies. We started on this path towards socialism, and we never broke, you know, we never decided to break, you know, relations. We never decided to change oil trade with uh, oil commerce with the United States. These have all been results of policies that the U.S. implemented towards Venezuela. When we finally decided to break relations in 2019, it was because of, you know, something that, that you know, it, it was even something that we, that we were left with no choice. You have a government that in our face is basically saying we don't recognize who we recognize this other person, who, you know, proclaims self-president. There was no other way but to, you know, to break relations. But Venezuela had never, you know, we've never had this intention. You know, we, we, we'd always been reliable trade partners. And today, you know, it's funny, if you want to really, you know, trade with Venezuelan oil again and buy Venezuelan oil, it is the United States that has all, to do all the work. It's the United States that has to lift the sanctions. It's the United States that have to allow its companies to operate in Venezuela. Is the United States that has to allow us to access the financial system so that we can, you know, go back and and be able to work within that system. It was never us that placed these difficulties or, or these blocks in the relationship. So if this ends up being a construction where in some in the near future, you know, some of these measures are lifted and, and we start, you know, uh, we, we go back to something that we had before. It's, it's what we always, you know, propose. It's what we always did. You know, it was the United States that changed that, uh, that made those changes. And I do think in the current context, you know, the, all the issues that are going on in the world, we're going to have an energy crisis. Also because the planet is, in, the, in, in, in you know, itself in a crisis mode. The capitalism is in a crisis mode. You know, it's been there uh, many years. We, we, we saw it. We've seen it more in a crude way because of the pandemic. But, you know, in order to stabilize, I think, you know, it would be in the interest of the people in the United States, the movements in the United States, you know, everybody should sort of think, you know, it, it would be better to go back to diplomacy, it would be better to go back to the other type of relations that we used to have in Venezuela, so that things can, you know, kind of uh, stabilize. I think it, should, it, it could be something worth rallying around, you know? So right now in the United States and in Europe, we're seeing kind of corporate media really demonize not just Russia, not just Vladimir Putin, but also the Russian people. What's the perspective on this conflict from Venezuela and from kind of the global south? How, are, how is Venezuela seeing what's going on in the Ukraine? What does Venezuela think about, about Russia and the Russian people? I believe that we have to start by saying something, uh, and, and you know, it's it's very important. We've always believed, you know, we're talking about diplomacy. We've always believed in the diplomacy of peace, and we are, of course, against uh, conflicts. We're we're very. President Maduro has said it, has said it uh, as well. You know, we are con very concerned about you know things escalating and going into another direction. You know, that could engage possibly the world into a, a major confrontation. And we definitely believe that we need, as an international community, as a global community, we need to do things so that conflicts scale down, so that, you know, we can return to diplomacy. 
Now, we can have this conversation without noticing or without realizing that these are issues that have been going on not since February, but that have been going on for many years. You know, there are issues uh, that threaten, that put in jeopardy Russia's security since many years ago, that put in jeopardy the lives of, of ethnic Russians within Ukraine, you know, since many years ago. You know, how many people have died in, in, in the conflicts uh, prior to, to this recent uh, operation in February? And those things are not in the news or, you know, they, they don't make the, the news cycle. And in any case, you know, if you have a NATO that is providing more weapons, uh, that is calling for, you know, building up a larger conflict, then of course, you know, we, we're all going to feel threatened and, and this is something, this is completely the wrong direction. Well, you should have, we believe countries in NATO and elsewhere should, pro- should you know, be promoting peace, understanding, meetings, you know, sit down, let's, let's sit down, let's talk, you know, that's, that's the way you de-escalate, not by sending more weapons and planes or whatever, you know, offering things that, that would continue or, or exacerbate a military conflict. And there's another, we don't think the solutions, I mean, we've experienced throughout all these years, these unilateral coercive measures. Now, when you say you see that every day new sanctions against Russia are announced and new things, well, where is that going to lead? We know that sanctions definitely do not lead to prosperity, to uh, you know, uh, to any of the goals that are, that are set, except for that goal that that you cannot admit in public, which is that you want to hurt the people of that country you sanction. So, at the end of the day. What you know, if that's going to be the solution offered by the U.S., are we going to put sanctions and a stronger sanctions than ever on Russia? Is that going? Who's that going to hurt? Nowhere in the world has have sanctions hurt anybody but the common people of any of those countries in question. So, having lived through that, having lived through all these attacks, uh, the xenophobia that, that has uh, spread in even in this region against Venezuelans. So we know, you know, that when that discrimination, that, that, that attack, having lived through censorship as Venezuelans, there's no media information that comes from Venezuela that you can listen to. Telesur is not something that you could easily access, in, you know, in the north and so forth. Well, having lived through this, we see what's going on towards Russia. And we understand that this is, you know, this is something negative we definitely don't agree with, that we definitely don't, don't support. We have expressed our support to the Russian people, to the Russian government, in a sense that we know these actions that are being taken place against them are very dangerous. I mean, just the fact that this is, as ridiculous as things are getting, that, you know, you want to you erase uh, Yuri Gargarin from space history, so as if this man never reached space. I mean, how ludicrous is this? I mean, how far are we willing to go to accept uh, and, and to normalize this? You know, it, it, we've lived it. I mean, we've seen things against Venezuela, how our, how our own history has been turned upside down by this narrative. Now we see it going on in Russia. Well, when is this going to stop? You know, uh, so I think uh, we sympathize with that we understand what's going on in Russia because we live something similar. 
and Carlos Ron, Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs for North America for the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, will have the last word on today's show. He was speaking on Code Pink Radio with Terry Madsen and Leonardo Flores. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on podcast at On the Ground Show with Esther Ivarum, and our website is onthegroundshow.org. You can also let us know you like the show on Twitter or on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. There's some problems with the Facebook page right now, but hopefully that will reemerge soon or I'll have access to it soon. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Ivarum. E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I if you like Victor E-R-E-M. The music we played this hour included In Tune by Robert Glasper featuring poetry by Amir Suleiman. Inspiration by Maluk and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>